0: After having premiered in New York and Century City, California over a couple weeks earlier, The Silence of the Lambs was released in theaters nationwide on February 14, 1991, where it became a sleeper hit that gradually gained widespread success and critical acclaim. On a budget of 19 million dollars, the film itself grossed over $272,700,000 at the worldwide box office. On March 30th, 1992, The Silence of the Lambs won five Academy Awards, including Best Picture. It also ended up becoming the third film in history to have won all five major Oscars following 1934's It Happened One Night and 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Since then, The Silence of the Limbs has regularly been cited by critics, filmmakers, and audiences alike as one of the greatest and most influential movies of all time. So what was the film's road to Oscar night like? We're about to find out. Hello everyone. This is Jeffrey Kerr. Welcome back to the Best Picture Backstory, where I am joined by a guest or two to discuss the history behind any previous Oscar winner for Best Picture. Today, we'll be talking about 1991's The Silence of the Lambs. Joining me for this conversation is not one, but two guests, which is a big first for this series. First, we have Casey Lee Clark, who is a writer and podcaster for Next Best Picture. Hello, Casey. Hello. Hello. Second, we have Brandon Stanwick, who is a writer for Film Autonomy and co-host of the Academy Queen's podcast. Hello, Brandon.
1: Hello. Thank you for having me.
0: Again, today we'll be talking about Jonathan Demme's 1991 psychological horror film, The Silence of the Lambs. It is based on Thomas Harris's 1988 novel, the same name. The story follows Clarice Starling, an FBI trainee who is given a big break when she is assigned to interview and construct a psycho-behavioral profile of the deranged killer Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter. Starling assumes correctly that her assignment is more than she is told. And she enters into a brief battle of wits with the clever and manipulative Lecter, who finally surrenders to her a clue that may lead her down a path towards catching the notorious killer, Buffalo Bill. When Bill kidnaps Catherine Martin, the daughter of prominent U.S. Senator Ruth Martin, Lecter's knowledge of the killer becomes central to the investigation. His budding rap with Starling leads him to agree to a deal that may ease the harsh restrictions placed on him as one of the world's most infamous criminals in exchange for sharing his knowledge of the Buffalo Bill case, assuming the kidnapped girl is recovered alive. The film was directed by the late Jonathan Demi from a screenplay by Ted Telly and starred Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins, Scott Glenn, Ted Levine, Anthony Held, Brooke Smith, Diane Baker, and Cassie Lemons. So to start things off, how did you first discover The Silence of the Lambs? Let's start with Casey.
2: Yeah, so I got really into horror and thrillers when I was younger, specifically like middle school age, and this was one that I always knew a lot about, but I wanted to finally watch it myself, and it was a very pivotal moment for me. I just remember being completely in awe of it, and it kind of changing the way I looked at film in a certain way. And I've seen it so much since. It's my favorite movie of all time. I mm. love it so much. I love what it has to say about strong female characters. I love it as a thriller. I love its exploration on serial killers and that type of story. I think it does it best. And I think that there's so many things that it does well. And I'm glad that it's stood the test of time, both with as a film in general and its Oscar history as well.
0: And Brandon, how did you discover Silence of the Lambs?
1: Well, I was a little bit younger when I first um, watched the Silence Mm -hmm. of the Lambs. I believe I was seven when I watched it. Um, Mm -hmm. My parents didn't really have boundaries when it came to what I watched. And um, by that point, my uncle had introduced me to Scream. And my parents figured if I could handle that, I was fine Mm -hmm. with pretty much anything. And um, my stepfather is very fond of the Silence of the Lambs. So one night, I think he had just purchased it at a store and it became like a family movie night when I was just seven uh, with my mom and stepdad. And um, of course, I was very young, so I didn't fully grasp everything that was going on. But, you know, I was able to understand roughly what was happening And um, I've revisited the movie several times over the years, and um, my fondness for it has deepened, and I also frequently cite it as my favorite film. So when you reached out and asked uh, what movie I was interested in, I immediately jumped on The Silence of the Lambs.
0: Uh, Yeah, and so did Casey, which is why I decided to have both of you on.
2: Yay. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, as for how I first discovered it, well, I remember first hearing of this film through a DVD trivia game from the early to mid-2000s titled Shout About Movies. It was during the first round where players would hear snippets of dialogue and then try to name the movie that dialogue came from. In the introduction to that particular round, they gave an example which was, I ate his lever with some father meat and some nice key and tea from The Silence of the Lambs. So the first time I ever saw the movie itself was when I rented it from Netflix while I was in high school. I don't exactly remember what my thoughts were at the time, but I did stream it a few years later, and I was definitely much more into the film on a second watch.
1: Yeah, it's a movie that I've definitely um, come to appreciate and understand more on repeat viewings, especially as I've gotten older. I mean, like I said, when you're seven, you don't really grasp all of the... um, psychological uh cultural sexual things that are going on um but as an adult those things become clearer mm-hmm. and um especially all of the um things involving the feminism and the queer aspects of this um and all the things like Casey was saying all the things this movie has to say and all the um things it's trying to um talk about discuss and dissect
2: Yeah, it's definitely something that I get something more out of every time I watch it. Like, just the other day, I watched it with the commentary track from Criterion, which, like, completely added all these other little details that I never noticed and stuff. And it's just, yeah, and I think with age, you get to pick up more on things. And I think I've picked up more on the filmmaking aspects of it and, like, the way that it's shot and the editing a lot now rather than, like, when I first watched it, which was more story-based and performance-based.
1: Do you recall who does the commentary on the Criterion DVD?
2: Yeah, it's a great one. It's I think it's from, like, 94, and it's Jodie Foster, Jonathan Demme, Anthony Hopkins, Ted Talley, and then the one FBI agent that they based Jack Crawford off of. Oh, so cool. you get a bunch of different—and it doesn't seem like they're in the same room. It seems like they just, like, recorded snippets, like, while watching it or whatever. But it's it's very informative and interesting and— yeah, I would recommend. I mean, if you're somebody that needs to, wants to get into Criterion, I think that that edition that they put out a couple of years ago on Blu-ray is one of the best.
0: Um, I have to check that out myself. On to the film's backstory. How familiar are either one of you with the backstory behind this film, Casey?
2: I know about like the how it was made and like that, like how. Ted Talley came up writing the script and Jonathan Demi getting involved and what actors were talked about it. But I've never actually like, I haven't read the book and that kind of a thing, but I know a little bit about um, how it came to be, I guess you should say.
1: Hmm.
0: And you, Brandon.
1: Um, I read the novel in high school, I believe. And um, I'm pretty familiar with some of the stuff that Thomas Harris used to build Buffalo Bill, like how he's sort of a composite of Ed Gein and like Ted Bundy and a little bit of, a other, uh, serial killer trivia stuff. But, um, I guess I have a, a casual understanding of the production process.
0: I've done research on this, I believe, earlier this year, and what I read is that prior to the novel's release, Orion Pictures partnered with actor Gene Hackman to bring the novel to the big screen, with Hackman set to direct and possibly star in the role of Agent Jack Crawford.
1: Yeah. I have read that, yeah.
0: Yeah, and negotiations were made to split the $500,000 cost of the rights between Hackman and the studio. In addition to securing the rights to the novel, producers also had to acquire the rights to the name Hannibal Lecter, which were owned by producer Dino De Laurentiis, I pronounced that right, who had previously made Manhunter, a 1986 film adaptation of Thomas Harris's Red Dragon, which was later remade uh, back in the early 2000s by Brett Ratner. And knowing to the financial failure of the earlier film, Dino lends the character rights to Orient Pictures for free.
2: Wow. Well, that part I didn't know. I mean, I knew that Manhunter was before this, but yeah.
0: Well, yeah, which had uh, Brian Cox as Hannibal Lecter
1: and uh, Joan Allen as Clarice Starling. Hmm. I know William Peterson plays uh, Will Graham in that version because uh, Manhunter is based on the novel Red Dragon which uh, you know, is set before The Silence of the Lambs, which is technically a sequel, but in the cinematic world, not so much. Um,
0: well, yeah, especially <laughs> the more recent Red Dragon we got in the early 2000s, which I already mentioned.
1: Right, yeah. Yeah, Red Dragon and Manhunter are based on the same novel.
0: And so in November of 1987, screenwriter Ted Talley was brought on board to write the adaptation. He had previously crossed paths with Thomas Harris many times with his interest in adapting the Silence of the Lambs since receiving an advanced copy of the book from Harris himself. When Talley was about halfway through writing the first draft, Hackman withdrew from the project and financing fell through. However, Orion Pictures co-founder Mike Medavoy assured Talley to keep writing as the studio itself took care of financing and searched for a replacement. Director. As a result, Orion Pictures sought director Jonathan Demi to helm the project. While the screenplay was not yet completed, Demi signed on after reading the novel. And when it came to casting, Jodie Foster was interested in playing the role of Clory Starling immediately after reading the novel. However, in spite of the fact that Foster had just won an Academy Award for her performance in 1988's The Accused, Demi was not convinced that she was right for the part. Having just collaborated with her in 1988's Married to the Mob, Demi's first choice for the role of Starling was Michelle Pfeiffer, who turned it down, later saying, It was a difficult decision, but I got nervous about the subject matter.
2: Yeah, a lot of the people that, I, and I'm blanking now on on the other actresses that they had approached for it, but a lot of them were like, "No, this is too vulgar for me." <laughs> and whereas like um, Jodie Foster like begged to be in it, which I think that you can you can tell how dedicated she was to the project from her performance. I think Melanie
1: Griffith, who Demi had recently worked with on Something Wild, was also in the mix, yeah. and she turned it down because I think she had found the material repulsive. And she, I think she was afraid of what it would do to her career. So uh, she also hmm. turned it down.
0: Well, yeah, I've also read that Meg Ryan rejected it as well for its gruesome things. And then Demi went to Laura Dern, of whom the studio was skeptical as not being a bankable choice. And as a result, Foster was awarded the role to, due to her
1: passion towards the character. Yeah, I think that passion really shows, too, on screen.
2: Yeah. And apparently one of the first mm-hmm. things they shot was... That opening of her doing the, um, the, why am I blanking? The, like, the course with all the ropes and all, and the running and whatnot. And apparently, like, she was, like, giving mm-hmm. it 100% every take, like, you know, giving it her all. And, like, you know, even from the beginning, she was like, I'm doing this, like, and, like, did a lot of research and whatnot.
0: And for the pivotal role of Dr. Hannibal Lecter, D- Emmy originally approached Sean Connery.
1: And-
2: that's, a uh, that's an interesting choice. <laughs>
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. I don't know how I'd feel about a Sean Connery, Hannibal Lecter. Um, I can't imagine there'd be a whole lot of uh, nuance there in the way that Anthony Hopkins brought it out. I don't know. I just don't see a Connery in that role.
0: And I guess, thank goodness, he turned it down. Because after that, Anthony Hopkins was then offered the part based on his performance in 1980's The Elephant Man. In fact, other Actors I've read that were apparently considered for the role included Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Dustin Hoffman, Derek Jacobi,
1: and even Daniel Day-Lewis. Derek Jacobi would be an interesting choice. I could see him doing something really interesting yeah. with that role, um especially considering that he did something similar, quote unquote, with like um oh what's that movie he did with uh, Daniel Craig, uh Love is the Devil, where he plays a very sadistic Francis Bacon. So I could see him going into some really dark territory and um, crafting a very interesting and complex Hannibal Lecter.
0: And of course, Hopkins won the role. And in fact, uh, I read the mask he wore became an iconic symbol for the movie. It was created by Ed Cubberley of Frenchtown, New Jersey, who had made numerous masks for NHL goalies.
2: That makes sense with the um, the like the way that that mask is done. Yeah, I went to the, um, I don't know if they still have this exhibit, but at the Museum of Moving Image in New York, and I think it's in Queens specifically, there was like um, exhibits on different um, sets and things. And there was a whole um, pictures up on the wall of the sketches for the sets, as well as like how the cells were designed in like Buffalo Bill's basement. And there was a thing about like the masks and things.
1: The design is very clever. It's very simplistic and yet totally sinister. Well, yeah, it's
0: definitely not complete cover-up like uh, Jason Voorhees in Friday the 13th. Yeah. In fact, uh, I guess back to Gene Hackman for a second, who, of course, as I mentioned, was originally cast to play Jack Crawford. Uh, Well, he ended up leaving because he found the script too violent.
2: It's like, I, I feel like now, and maybe that's because now we've had a lot of different types of films since Silence of the Lambs that are this mainstream and more graphic and whatever that it's hard to believe of people being that scared away from the project, but you know, things change with time.
1: Yeah. I suppose we're more open to genre now than we were back in the day. Like I, like we see that with like the Oscars, how there's always that genre bias and for some reason, anything that's um, genre in any re- any way is looked down upon as like a lesser form of storytelling So maybe that's just a change of the time.
0: Well, yeah, because obviously Get Out was able to overcome genre bias two years ago to become a Best Picture nominee and winner an original screenplay. And so when Scott Glenn was cast as Jack Crawford, he prepared for the role by meeting with Johnny Douglas, who gave him a tour of the Quantico facility and also played for him an audio tape containing various recordings that serial killers Lauren Spitaker and Roy Norris had made of themselves raping and torturing a 16-year-old girl.
2: Yeah, they talked about that a bit because John Douglas was the one that was in the, um, the commentary track that I listened to and that, like, I think Scott Glenn got through, like, I think he also played it for Jonathan Demi too, or, or Ted Talley, one of them, and, like, they got in, like, two minutes through that, and they were like, I can't. <laughs> I can't do this.
1: Yeah.
0: That's
1: yeah, about as in-depth as uh, you can get when it comes to research before you have to uh, t- turn it off and uh, say you're done with your homework.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, and according to Douglas, Glenn wept as he experienced the recordings and even changed his liberal stance on the death penalty. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I heard they talked about that a bit too.
0: So now let's get into the Silence of the Lambs' run during award season in 1991-92. Leading up to the Oscars that year, the Silence of the Lambs had won the PGA, the DJ, and the WGA for Adapted Screenplay, so I pretty much swept through all the big industry awards at the time. Now SAG hadn't given out their awards yet, so... But hey, if... In fact, I'm curious. Had, I guess, SAG awards been in existence back then, how well do you think Silence of the Lambs could have done? Casey?
2: I think it would have been nominated probably, but I think something like JFK probably would have won.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. It probably would have been nominated. Uh, JFK seems like a likely choice for the win, considering how vast that cast is. Also that same year you had like the Fisher King and Thelma and Louise. So um, I could see those other films also sneaking in there and possibly taking it. But um, I think it's a safe bet that the Silence of the Lambs would at least secure a nomination but I, I agree with Casey. JFK has the um, flashier cast, so that would probably sneak in and win.
0: Well, yeah, plus JFK had the bigger ensemble, and usually the bigger ensemble tends to win.
1: That, too.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so I guess with that aside, I mean, I guess looking at the major precursor Signs of the Lambs was able to win leading up to the Oscars, I guess— If we were to travel back in time to 1992 trying to predict the Oscars, I guess, how would it look to you about Silence of the Lambs going into Oscar night?
2: I mean, I think there would have been the apprehension of the fact that it came out in February the year before. And I don't think that that type of release schedule was as big of a problem back then. But now, like, you know, it takes a lot for a film to come out that early in the year to maintain momentum for Oscar season.
1: Yeah, it had come out super early, but um, if I remember correctly, I think I re—I recall reading once that The Silence of the Lambs was um, the first, if not one of the first Oscar contenders to be released on VHS prior to the closing mm-hmm. of the voting. So even though it had been released um, a long time ago in Oscar terms, um, it was re- a refresher in people's minds. So I think it being released early, it gave it the opportunity to then be released on tape in time to uh, remind people of how great it is. Had it not been released on tape, um, perhaps it would have been forgotten. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, of course, if the film was campaigning for Oscars today, they would use screeners.
2: Yeah. And I think it probably had a similar awards trajectory to something like... Birdman or The Shape of Water where it kind of took off with those industry awards like PGA and DGA whereas like the Globes went to like other films. So.
0: Well, Because Sounds of the Lambs lost the Golden Globe for best motion picture drama to Bugsy.
2: Yeah. And then Nick Nolte won actor for Prince of Tides and Oliver Stone won director. Yeah. Different times.
0: <laughs> yeah. Different co- times call for different measures. <laughs> so
2: Yeah. Whereas like Jodie Foster I think like basically sweeped the season, which makes sense, which, although surprising considering she had only won a couple of years before that, but, you know.
0: Now, on to the nominations, Silence of the Lambs received uh, received seven Academy Award nominations for Best Picture, Best Director for Jonathan Demme, Best Actor for Anthony Hopkins, Best Actress for Jodie Foster, Best Adapted Screenplay for Ted Talley, Best Film Editing, and Best Sound. So, do you think Silence of the Lambs got all the nominations it deserved? If not, do you think it deserved more or less, starting with Casey?
2: I would have given it probably a nomination for score and cinematography personally but otherwise i think everything else i'm pretty happy with although i think actually no i also probably would have maybe nominated ted levine in supporting actor but then i think we would get into semantics of he might have more screen time than anthony hopkins who's in lead so i don't know about that but otherwise i think i'm pretty happy with everywhere else that it was
1: yeah i agree pretty much with casey Uh, i do think that ted levine was robbed of a nomination but um yeah, you're right. You do get into the argument of who's really more supporting between him and Anthony Hopkins, because I do sympathize with the people who say that Hopkins is in the wrong category here. Um, I also think the score should have been recognized. It's I'm not really a big score person when it comes to films, but the Silence of the Lambs score is one of my favorites. It's easily recognizable in my mind, and I love uh, Tak Fujimoto's cinematography and this film, I think it's uh, cinematography that could be taught in schools. I think it, it could be used in textbooks to explain framing and color and movement and all sorts of different um, cinematography techniques and whatnot. So yeah, those are the big ones that stick out in my mind. Um, maybe art direction and costume. I mean, it's not usually what the Oscars would go for. Um, usually that's reserved for the period stuff or the more fantastical type things. But there, there was a lot of thought put into the colors and shapes of everything that went in front of the camera in this film. So I think it would have been a cool opportunity for the Academy to recognize a contemporary story in Art Direction and Costumes.
0: Well, yeah, especially since the customs were designed by Colleen Atwood, who's now become an Oscar darling with a gazillion nominations and four wins.
1: Yeah. Exactly. How cool would it have been if this had been Colleen Atwood's first nomination? <laughs> yeah. Considering what she would go on to do. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's
2: an interesting one. But I do agree with that art direction. I think especially the intricacies of um, the prison cells and Buffalo Bill's basement and things like that. I think that there's a lot to work with there. I, I'm always a champion for really good... Um, modern day production design, so. Right,
1: because I think I read somewhere once that originally when they were um, designing Lecter's cell, it had the typical bars on it. And Demi and his production designer decided that the bars would be a hindrance to the shooting. So that's when they came up with the glass concept, which I think was a brilliant idea.
2: Yeah, and Mm -hmm. I know that Anthony Hopkins had a lot of say in, like, like, how... He was standing and whatnot when Clarice comes in there. Then the part when he's in the jail cell after meeting with um, Senator Martin—that like him in the all white was his like idea of looking almost like like a foreboding dentist or something. He said like it was just yeah. There was a lot of um, feedback from the actors on those types of things, which I appreciate, and I think that that makes the whole picture work. I
1: agree.
0: Yes, in fact, I guess as for me, well, yeah, I definitely thought Ted Levine should have been nominated. In fact, I remember when Kevin Jacobson asked Film Twitter a while ago about which performances from 1991 they felt deserved an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor, Ted Levine came in at number one.
2: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's hard to ignore, especially because he, like, completely transforms into this, which I think, like, helped and hurt him in that it's such a great performance, but I think it, like hindered some of his casting for a little while just of like, cause he's so good at playing Buffalo bill that it's almost scary.
1: Yeah. I think I read that it was really hard for him to play quote unquote normal characters after this because people weren't interested in casting him as that, or they're afraid that people would just see him as Buffalo bill. So yeah. that, that's really unfortunate for him because he's a tremendous actor. Um, I love him whenever he pops up in anything. He's one of those really great character actors
0: Well, yeah, and I believe he even has a supporting role in The Report coming up.
2: Oh, good. I didn't know that. Yeah, he's been getting a lot more work now, I think, with age and with looking a little bit less like he did. I think that, like, will help him get more roles. But, yeah, he's a great character actor. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: In fact, I guess we can talk about Anthony Hopkins for a little bit. Now, of course, he only had 15 minutes of screen time, yet he was not only nominated for Best Actor, but ended up winning that. So let's talk about this. Do you think, they, the I guess, whoever was in charge of the campaigning for Silence of the Lambs, do you think they made right call in putting him in lead, or do you think he could have gone supporting?
2: I do think that his presence looms over the entire film, and you can see why he would be put in lead and also, I think, like, culturally, like, he had all of the most iconic pop culture moments of the film, so it would make sense for him to be the lead. I do also think that he would have won lead or supporting. I don't think that would have hindered his winning. Um, and it doesn't, it's, again, it's one that doesn't bother me, but I think that's also just because I love the film so much and I'm just like, he can win anywhere, I don't care. But, yeah, I can see the argument for both.
1: Yeah, it's hard to say that they made the wrong call considering he would go on to win it. Um, But I agree with Casey. I think he was winning regardless of which category he was in. Um, This is a performance and a role that seems undeniable. And so I think he was taking it either way. Um, As far as him being in the wrong category, I see where people are coming from with the 15 minutes of screen time. It's a very small fraction um, of this two hour film, but this is a character who looms very large and um, Demi and Tally and Hopkins were able to create a character who, even when he's not on screen, his presence is there. He's constantly being talked about in the movie. And so much of what's going on is the Lecter's orchestration. So, he's really driving the movie in a lot of ways, even if he's not always in the scenes. So like Casey, I guess I'm okay with the lead partially because I just love the performance and I love this movie, but it's really tricky when you break it down because if you're looking at screen time and screen time only, then sure that's more of a supporting part. But when you're looking at how the character fits in the narrative and the impact that the character's having on the furthering of the plot, it's hard to say that he's not leading it. So um, I'm okay with it overall, but I understand where people are coming from when they say it's wrong.
2: I think also the fact that Jodie won makes me feel okay about it, because it is her movie. She is clearly the lead, and I think that the fact that she wasn't, like, overshadowed by these, you know more over-the-top performances. I mean, yes, obviously they're in different categories, but, you know, it could have gotten lost in the shuffle, so I appreciate that she still came out on top, too.
1: Agreed. Yeah, Silence of the Lambs is Clarice's story. It is her journey. So, yeah, her winning definitely makes it better. It'd be weird if she had lost and Hopkins had won.
0: Well, yes. Plus, you know, Silence of the Lambs ended up becoming the third and most recent film in history to have won the top five awards at the
1: Oscars.
2: the only ones that won, which I think is really cool. But I, and again, I think we all, we can agree that they're all deserved. I feel like now we're getting into, it's a lot more spreading the wealth type narratives. And I feel like it's going to be a lot harder for a movie to win the big five moving forward, just based on like the amount of director picture splits that we get every year. I feel like the lack of a clear best actor and actress from the same film. Like, I think that it's, We see things where it gets close, but, you know, miss one or two. So I think that that's going to be something harder to achieve. And I think there's also just more films than there were in some of those other years. Yeah. So.
0: Well, yes, especially given that Best Picture and Best Director in recent years have been voted on by two separate voting systems.
2: Yeah. Right.
0: Uh, well, yes. In fact, uh, in response to Anthony Hopkins, you know, yeah, I guess I compare. I guess you can compare it to Olivia Coleman in *The Favorite* this past year, where even though she might not be the obvious lead of the film, still her presence rarely looms over it throughout, even when she's not on screen. And uh, whether she's in lead or supporting, she probably have more easily won either way.
2: Yeah. That's probably
1: true. Yeah.
0: Okay, so I guess now segueing into the wins, uh, "Sounds of the Lambs" won five Academy Awards for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Adapted Screenplay. So, do you think "Sounds of the Lambs" got all the wins it deserved? If not, did it deserve more or less? Casey.
2: I mean, I think all the ones that it did win, I think were deserved. I think. I mean, it lost. What it lost sound to Terminator Two, which makes. Makes sense. I'm I'm pulling up the, what it, the nomination list and wins here. Just uh... yeah, and film editing
0: it lost to JFK.
2: Yeah, I mean I can see that.
0: Well, yeah, it's like an hour longer than.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I personally would have given to Silence of the Lambs specifically for the big sequence near the end when Clarice is heading to the house and. Um, Jack Crawford and the other people are heading to the other house, and then you realize that she's at Buffalo Bills. And that reveal and that editing there, I think, is just brilliant.
1: That's a really uh, clever piece of trick editing on uh, Demi and his editor's part. I really dig that moment, too.
0: In regards to the category of Best Film Editing that year, the nominees were JFK, which is our winner, The Commitments, The Silence of the Lambs, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, and Thelma and Louise. So I guess um, have either one of you seen all the nominees in this category?
1: I haven't seen The Commitments. (laughs) That's the same one that I have not seen. Yeah,
0: neither have I. In fact, I also actually still have not seen JFK, but I do plan to change that eventually.
2: Yeah, that's one that I've seen parts of, but not all the way through.
1: Yeah, I've seen it, but it's been many years, um, so I can't really speak to how great the editing is. But I think if Terminator 2 had won, it would have made sense as well. Yeah. Um, Although I think uh, Demi's and Craig McKay's editing in The Silence of the Lambs is really astute and pretty clever at times and again this is like one of those movies where i think just across the board it could be taught in film schools so i think it's just very well done very well thought out so i would have been perfectly okay with it considering you know just how much i love the movie but um i can't really uh diss JFK and Terminator 2 is also a a a choice that would have made sense to me, given the nature of that film and how action-packed it is.
0: Well, yeah, because if it were today, Terminator 2 would probably be winning, because as my boss at Golderby, Tom O'Neill, often keeps saying that in order to win, you got to have the most of something. Like, the most editing wins, best film editing, the most cuts, the most action sequences. Yeah. So... I guess on to sound, I mean, I guess, what are your thoughts in this category? Do you think Terminator 2 rightfully won, or do you think something else like Silence of the Lambs or any of the other nominees should have taken it?
2: I mean, I feel like Terminator 2 is a perfectly reasonable win for this. Like, I don't fault sure. this one at all.
1: Yeah, same. It's just the nature of that film. It. I mean... It's a movie that requires great sound in order for it to be a successful action film. So um, I think it's perfectly okay, and it makes sense to me why a movie like Terminator 2 would take it. So I'm cool with it.
0: In fact, I imagine, well, even though JFK is the only one of the nominees in this category I have not seen, still, I thought every other nominees like Terminator 2, Signs of the Lambs, Backdraft, and Beauty and the Beast are all great nominees in this category.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, Backdraft would have been another one that I would have been cool with. I remember, um, it's been a long time, but I recall the sound being quite effective in that film, considering it's another, you know, action film.
0: Oh, well, yeah, I guess, again, to the most of something, the loudest movie usually wins the sound categories.
1: Yeah. Makes sense.
0: And, again, I guess we can all agree that the five Oscar sounds that the lambs did win were all well-deserved.
1: Yeah. I think so.
0: Well, yeah, I I can agree with that, definitely, because, again, it has great acting, great directing, great writing, and it overall makes a great movie.
2: Yeah, and I'm just, I'm happy any world where Jonathan Demme has an Oscar, so.
0: Well, yeah, at least managed to win one in his career and lifetime, who, of course, God rest his soul.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, all the pieces came together, and uh, I would say this is Jonathan Demme's masterpiece, so yeah. it would make sense why he would win for this particular film over his others
0: oh yeah in fact i even remember shortly after he died cbs sunday morning did an obituary on him saying that while he was never in the league of like steven spielberg ridley scott or martin scorsese he deserved to have been in that league
2: yeah and i wish he would have made more bigger awards plays later in his career although i really love rachel getting married i think that one's a great film.
0: Well, yeah, I guess the closest he got was his follow-up Philadelphia, which did win Tom Hanks the first of his two consecutive yeah. Oscars, as well as song for Bruce Springsteen.
2: Yeah. True. Yeah.
0: I guess that just about does it for our conversation on the Science of the Lambs. So thank you both Casey and Brandon for joining me today.
2: Yeah,
1: of course. Thanks for having us.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much.
0: For those who'd like to keep up with your work, where can they find you on the internet? Casey?
2: Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter at Casey Lee Clark. I write and podcast for next best picture. So you can find me on any of those shows or my writings on there.
1: And Brandon. And you can find me on Twitter at Brandon Stanwick, And I uh, write for filmotomy. And I also have the podcast Academy Queens that I co-host um, about the Academy Awards so that's pretty much where you can find me okay and uh once
0: again thank you both for joining me and you're both welcomed back any time
2: awesome thank you thank you
0: if you like what you've heard here please subscribe to wherever you get this podcast feel free to rate and or review this show on itunes if you'd like to find more content from me please visit my website, which is www.carereviews.com. You can also find it on Twitter at Carereviews and me at Jeffrey Care. Thanks for
2: listening, and I'll see you all later.